This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Today, I have Adam LaRoche, former MLB first baseman and founder of the E3 Ranch Foundation. I was just telling Adam uh, before we went live that I was so excited to be talking to him today. Um, kind of bittersweet, our, our Philadelphia Phillies uh, didn't pull out the World Series, um, but I found my renewed love for baseball um, in the last several weeks, just watching their journey. And it was awesome. So I was so excited to have you on today. It literally couldn't have been better timing. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Now, great to be here. Um, I'm glad we got introduced and yeah, look forward to chatting. Yeah. So let's, let's start out a little bit. Uh, you know, I just want to give some background to, um, to our listeners. Um, so Adam and his wife, Jennifer, um, they live on the E3 ranch in um, in Kansas. The ranch, would, which boasts over 4,000 acres, has been in Jennifer's family for five generations, starting in the 1900s. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, but before that, before, and we're going to talk a lot about the E3 ranch and the foundation. Before that, uh, Adam was an MLB first baseman. You played 12 seasons with the Braves, the Pirates, Boston Red Sox, the Arizona Diamondbacks, Washington Nationals, and Chicago White Sox. So, you know, pretty interesting in terms of kind of that shift that you took from playing major league baseball to now the work that you do with veterans, human trafficking. Um, and, you know, you don't see a lot of people kind of go into that next phase of their life and and do what you're doing. But I'd love to start off um, with the journey in into the MLB and what yeah. that looked like for you. Yeah. You know, it was a little different for me because my dad played. Um, so we had grown up, I've got two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And, and actually all three of us played pro pro baseball. And I halfway joke and say, it's because we weren't smart enough to do anything else that it was like baseball or nothing. But, but with my dad playing and us growing up, going to spring trainings, uh, traveling, and being in a different city, different house, different school, you know, all the time, and just being around those guys. Um, it, it wasn't something that was unreachable, you know, in my mind. So even from when I was really, really young, um, it was almost just kind of a matter of fact, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Dad did it. So this is what I'm going to do. So it wasn't like one of those things that's out of reach or a pipe dream. And yeah, just kind of stuck with that um, and had awesome parents you know, help kind of navigate us along the way. And, and uh, yeah, ended up doing it, played a couple of years of junior college ball, um, played down in Oklahoma at uh, Seminole state and then signed with Atlanta uh, in 2000 and then retired in 16. So how old were you when you started playing professionally? Um, I was 19 or 12, I was probably 20. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was right after I went two years of junior college. So I think I was 20 when I started uh, rookie ball in Danville, Virginia. And I think we were making, I think my paycheck was like 
$400 every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, and, and I don't think the minor leagues has changed a whole lot. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, they think of professional baseball players and oh my gosh, everybody makes millions, oh, but it's interesting. The um, kind of what you grind through financially. I mean, back then, like everybody in the minor leagues, you work jobs in the off season. So when you come home as a major leaguer, you can do whatever you want. When you're in the minor leagues, you absolutely come home and work construction or cook at a restaurant, you know, whatever it is. Um, but man, those were fun. Some fun memories. Do you think of uh, some of those experiences? And, you know, so my family is a, a lacrosse family. And so we were all lacrosse players. It's a very fast paced game. And like, and a lot of times I say with the, the sport of lacrosse, like you don't ever even have time to think or process. It's like you start mm-hmm. the game and then the next thing you know, the game's over. Right. And it's just like this constant go, go, go. And as I was watching uh, the Phillies, you know, win the national league and then, you know, head into the world series. And I was really like watching baseball from a different lens than I did when I was a kid. And, you know, we went and tried to catch the foul ball. Um, but looking at it as like, and and one of the things I found most interesting is like, you know, Bryce Harper hits a home run and then they've got like a guy down there interviewing him. And I'm like, this is wild yeah. to think like the game is still happening, but, yeah. but like the, the tempo of the game is so different than a lot of other sports. And, it is. And, you know, how do, how do you get used to that with kind of these, there's like momentum and then it's just like, I mean, dead it's, it's for, dead. for an hour. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's part of what makes the game really hard mm-hmm. is that you have time for your mind to go other places and really get, get in your own way and, and start overthinking things or sit for 45 minutes in between at bats and think about the last at bat where you struck out with the bases loaded, you know, just all the negative things that can run through your mind um, is part of kind of the mental, mental grind of it. But I don't know when they started the mid game interviews, um, but it had to be in the last few years. Cause I don't remember ever, you know, any media being allowed in the dugout the way they are now to, to do like real time interviews. Yeah. It's a little, little odd. I was not, a, I was not a fan of it. I was like, God, yeah. like, you're, you're taking them out of their zone. Like, what are you doing? But it's interesting. You say that like the, the, you know, these, where you start to overthink or, or kind of lose concentration. I was listening to, um, I was listening to an interview. So uh, Castellanos, you know, he had some huge defensive plays in the the playoffs and um, somebody was interviewing him right before the world series. He caught that, he caught th- this, you know, he had a great catch and, you know, slid and dove and then did it in like game one, almost identical, had the same catch in game one of the world series. And they were interviewing him. Our, our Philly radio station was interviewing him and they were like, yeah, because I guess during the regular season, those were the type of balls that he was just like not catching. And they're like, what changed for you? And he was like, well, I wasn't really concentrating that much during the regular season. And, <laughs> and I was listening to our sports talk and they're like, that's something we're going to have to address going into next season. Like let him go, he's concentrating now. But when you think about the amount of games that you guys are playing, the hours that these games take, and again, the, the long uh, time in between, you know, going out on the field and being at bat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I found so fascinating 
uh, about the sport when I was watching it and I was watching the World Series and the playoffs. I was just like, wow, yeah, I never really thought about it. How different this sport is um, from other sports because there is just so much almost downtime um, in between. Yeah. Yeah. They, they talk about baseball um, being 90% mental, you know, and 10% fit. And, and I'm, I'm not so, and we, I've heard that forever since I was little, but I'm not so sure it's not 95 mental. I mean, I just feel like every slump I've ever been in, you know, it was never something physically. It, it always started with, with what was in my mind, but the, you know, the thing with playing that many games, um, that that seems like a grind and it is it's a lot of games but it's also nice to when you do have a bad game you know you're coming out the very next day and you don't have to wait you know five days seven days to get back out there and, and have all that time to think about it so you really have to have a, a short-term memory and and just be able to flush that stuff pretty quickly but i'm um, i'm still trying to figure it makes me want to call castianos and and ask him why he felt the need to tell people exactly what he was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of those that you might want to, uh, yeah, you might want to wordsmith that answer a little bit. Uh, well, again, in our, that and that's pretty funny that he just flat admitted to not concentrating during the season and, and our, then it on when he needed to. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, our, our Phillies, our Philly fans and talk radio, they are very unforgiving, you know, and, and, well, I shouldn't say they're unforgiving because we are very forgiving, but we'll hate you one day and we'll love oh, you yeah. next. It's it's all based on how yeah. you perform. And but they were they did like I was driving, so it was this hour long analysis on like, well, see, he wasn't concentrating, and we got to right. get on him. And um, but I I I thought it was pretty funny, but it was it was great. Well, what a great you got to appreciate the honesty too mm -hmm, for sure for him. What if um. When you think about the 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 twelve seasons that you played, um, is there one moment that was like the most pivotal for you? Like the one memory of like that it was like the mm. mecca. Um, from a from an individual kind of performance standpoint, if I were to answer it from from that angle, um, probably in Houston, um, ironically playing them in the playoffs. In 04, I think in 04. So 04 was my rookie year, kind of officially my rookie year in the big leagues. Um, and it was either 04 or 05 because we played them back-to-back -back years. But I just remember playing them and having a, a really good game, and we won. And and that being the first time, um, I think, really knowing that I belong here. You know, because there for a while when you come up, you're like – you're a little unsure, and you're looking at guys that – You've watched play for years in the major league, especially when I came up with the Braves, it was all a bunch of older guys, some future Hall of Famers, like some really good players. Um, so, yeah, just it, it it takes a minute to to finally kind of view yourself as a major leaguer or one of the guys. Or So, yeah, I can't remember what game it was, but I do remember uh, a game in the postseason where it just kind of clicked that, okay, I'm glad it was again. You know, I, I, I belong here. Yeah. <laughs> and then from a, from kind of a, I guess a more important or, or family standpoint, uh, as I got older and continued to play um, and to have my son come to the field with me mm. in, uh, in DC. So when I played with the nationals, Drake, our son, which he would have been like 12 at the time, um, the nationals were just great about 
opening their arms for him to come in and be like another one of the guys. He was basically our 26th man, you know, on the roster. And he would come with us on team flights. Um, you know, he'd be in the dugout during games. He'd be out there during warm-up and batting practice. And just having him around all the time and be able to let him see me at work and in that environment and let me see me when things are going great and when things are going terrible, um, just to have him and uh, have him be a part of that was was like the greatest thing I could have ever asked for. That's pretty awesome. And and again, something that's probably not the norm for other, um, mm-hmm. you know, professional sports. So that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I learned about you that I that I found very interesting and um, that in high school, you were diagnosed with ADHD. And um, what were some struggles that that led to, you know, both in school, but then did did you have to deal with anything playing baseball, um, any challenges because of that on the baseball? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, Gosh, I've got a I've got a bunch of stories where I just airhead moments like. You know, and it's one thing doing it around the house. It's another thing doing it in front of 40,000 people. <laughs> um, and I tried to never use the ADD as like, you know, as an excuse for that. But I had some great teammates that, and this may not make sense, I guess, unless you played or if you're a baseball fan, but there's there's things the middle infielders do um, to let you know what pitch is coming. So they can see in and see the catcher's signs. And playing first, a lot of times I'll – either forget to look at, you know, just whatever reason or can't see the sign. So I just had a second baseman in Atlanta when I was coming up that knew how fast I could lose focus. And he was always on me with kind of some, you know, whether it was a whistle or different things he could do to kind of remind me of, you know, he's always letting me know how many outs there were and just kind of getting ahead of another embarrassing screw up in front of 40,000 people. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it was I think it also helped in some ways, too, because of just the short term memory of, again, being able to forget about what happened the night before and just go play, you know, go play another ball game. Yeah. Um, How do you. But yeah, I've got some I've got some some pretty funny story. I, actually, one when you say that one that comes to mind is my wife and I was testing out like trying Ritalin, Concerta, Adderall, whatever, all these different. Yep. And I was complaining to my wife one night, and this is when I was playing, I think I was with the Nationals. And I was complaining to her about none of these working. And she kind of just gave me this look and then said something to the effect of, well, maybe you're just not real smart. And it has nothing to do with the medicine at all. Like, I mean, I just teed it up perfectly for like blaming this medicine. She's like, maybe the medicine's actually working and you're just just not real smart so (laughs) anyway we got plenty of those um yeah to 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 laugh about from over the years so you know i mean you you talk about like adhd and you know that's one of a lot of different um issues that people deal with and and you know with that can come some stigma um as well were you afraid to disclose that no i I never was as a matter of fact uh, when I did, I was in Atlanta, I think it was my rookie year. Um, it was actually really cool because I had a lot of parents 
and a lot of fans and a lot of kids, mainly parents that came up and just talked about their kids being embarrassed to talk about it, embarrassed for, you know, their classmates or whatever. There was just kind of a stigma about it. So I think it, it was neat then. I think it gave some of those kids a little more confidence um, to not be ashamed of it and not be embarrassed of it and not, you know, not feel like they had to hide it. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's so important. And, you know, the idea that like you very easily could have hid that you could have just shared that with, you know, your teammates, your manager said, you know, keep this on the down low, not looking to make this a public thing. But the idea that like your fans knew and, and those young kids that were dealing with the same thing, were able to see themselves in your shoes, you know, it's yeah. huge. Definitely. So yeah. To no, I'd like to, yeah, I wouldn't change that at all. Uh, and I'd like to think it, you know, it helped out some, some kids along the way. So you go from 12 seasons in, in major league baseball, and then you decide to dedicate your life to service. And, and I heard that it was a, actually a trip to Walter Reed. That was a pivotal moment for you. Is that correct? That was a, that was a big part of it. Yeah. There's a few things that came into play because I was still under contract for one more year with the White Sox. Um, so yeah, you could say that i i stepped away early. Um, Walter Reed was a big one, but that came, that actually came years before that when I was playing and I I was probably with Atlanta and we took a trip into DC to play against the nationals. And I got invited to go to Walter Reed. Um, Just, you know, one of those go in the morning, hang out for a few hours. Year was this approximately? Go hang with the guys probably. Oh, six. So big. That was a big time. So during- oh yeah, yeah. It, it, crazy busy yeah. there, and and so that was my first trip in either oh oh five or oh six, and it just it was so impactful that I think every trip after that into DC, I, you know I made a contact at Walter Reed, and every trip after that I would, I would make it a point to grab a couple teammates and, and go down there and just you know stick our head in and say hi to the guys. And then fast forward um, a few years when I when I got traded to D.C. and played there for a while, because then I literally lived like right down the street from Walter Reed. So got to go there a lot more and and really develop a relationship with a lot of the guys that were in there. And then we got to where we were bringing a group of them out to the stadium every once in a while just to give them a change of scenery for their rehab. So depending on what depending on what they had going on, they would come hit with us in the batting cage or come out on the field and take ground balls. Um, you know, if they, if they couldn't do that, uh, just hanging out with the guys and kind of making them feel a part of the team. And so that needless to say was really put baseball in perspective for a lot of us during those years on that team to get to hang with those guys. Um, it, it made our bad day or, or bad game um, not quite so bad you know, when we're getting to go play a baseball game, making crazy money and, you know, in this country um, really put things in perspective. So then I would come home every off season. We would come back here where I'm at now to our ranch, the E3 ranch um, in Kansas. And we do a bunch of hunting here and we just have all this land and this lodge. And so I just got the idea and I, and I was still playing at the time. This is before the foundation started or anything was official. 
um, to take some of those guys out of Walter Reed that I had developed a relationship, especially as they got, you know, further along in their rehab and, and could get out and move around uh, to start bringing them out here uh, just to, as a way to serve them and, and say thank you. So I'd bring out like one or two at a time and, and take them on hunts, fishing trip, you know, whatever, whatever was in season at the time. And yeah. And then we started the foundation and just continued it on a, on a little bigger scale. So tell me more about the ranch and the foundation. So it, it, it starts with, you know, you're bringing some guys out. Where do you start to think like, Hey, I actually want to do more than just, you know, I love what I'm doing, but I want to actually make this into something. Well, I think a, a couple things. One, we've got this big ranch and I don't remember what year it was or what the, like the specific moment was, but I remember looking around out here at this incredible lodge and our old house that we lived in for 10 years, which is now another lodge and all this property and all this great hunting. Um, and just feeling like, feeling like God was saying, um, probably be pretty selfish for you to take all of this that I've given you and just use it for like a hangout for you and your buddies to come drink and hunt and play around. And so it, it became, and I had already had a couple of vets out, you know, in the off seasons before that. Um, but it just became crystal clear. It's like the light bulb turned on, like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's why we have all this is to, uh, you know, serve these guys that, that spent their life serving us and girls. Um, so it, may, it was but like, that's, I mean, we, I started a foundation too. It's no easy task. Um, no, it's not. And, yeah. and at that point, honestly, I didn't even think foundation. I was just thinking what we're going to use the ranch for. Okay. So at that time it was like, Hey, when I'm done, I'm we're hosting like as many as we can bring out. I want to just have a rotation of these guys coming out. <clears throat> and then it turned into, well, maybe we should do a foundation because I've got teammates that, Hey, I want to, I want to sponsor a guy or donate to it or, you know, just word of mouth. And I, I, I think that's actually probably why it started where they were like, well, it makes sense. If, if you have a foundation, they donate, they can write it off. And so it became just a, all right, well, let's, let's set something up. Yeah. Um, and at that point, the human trafficking piece probably wasn't in the picture yet I think that was and I was still playing when I took my first trip overseas to go work with a friend that does counter human trafficking work in Thailand and that was in 2015 either 14 I think the off season of 15 um, when I kind of got introduced to that whole world of evil and um, so yeah so, I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. No. So, so thank you. Right now you continue to do these, we'll call them retreats for veterans. Yeah. Um. So you're bringing them out to the ranch and, and our mutual friend, Brian has told me so much about it and it sounds awesome. My husband's, you know, sending me links to the, the meat stocks that we need to buy from you. He's like, check yes. it out. So, <laughs> so lots of, lots of cool things that are happening on this ranch. You know, they're bringing veterans out there, they're hunting and 
if you're, you know, those who are familiar with the Travis Manion Foundation, you know, we do a lot of these, you know, retreats, expeditions, like, mm-hmm. and that camaraderie, like, I know the magic that happens on, on trips yeah. like this. Um, and yeah. the healing that can happen in a week when, you know, guys have probably been going through therapy for years and years, and they come together for one week and, and are completely transformed. Um, yeah. I've seen it happen, and I'm sure that's exactly what's taking place on your ranch. Um but then you well, it's cool. Go ahead. It's cool that you've seen that because you know very few people have. So you can talk to people and explain it to them, but it's hard. I think it's hard to wrap your mind around. Well, how can you really make a difference in like a five or six day hunt? And I don't know, but I know it absolutely happens, and we see it over and over. Where you know we'll get calls from from wives of these guys that are like, I don't know what you guys, I don't know what kind of voodoo you guys have at the ranch, but they're like a totally different person. And I've told my husband that every chance he gets, he needs to go back there and just, you know, get a recharge. So yeah, it's good. It's neat that you've experienced that too. Um, Cause I think it's pretty hard to believe if you, if you haven't seen it or, or been a part of it, but it, it absolutely happens. You know, one of the things that we have focused on a lot through our work at the Travis Manning Foundation is this type of holistic approach to mental health. And and that's exactly what you're doing. And, you know, I've I've been around the world with veterans and families of fallen service members, um, you know, Guatemala, Puerto Rico. I'm heading back again in January with a group of veterans and families of the fallen to do hurricane, um, you know, hurricane rebuild efforts. And I'll never forget it was I was in Guatemala and I was with a woman who the entire time she had lost her husband and the entire time she had not talked about anything. And we don't bring people on these trips with any obligation that they have to share anything. It's it's for them. They get out of it what they put into it. Um, but we do kind of like sessions every night where we sit around. And if you want to share some stories, you can. Again, no pressure. And it was on the last day and we we built a house in a week in Guatemala for a homeless family. And the woman was standing next to me and she was hammering a nail into the wood. And she turned to me and she said, you know, this was my husband's hammer. And I said, oh, it was. And she said, yeah, I brought it with me. And it just feels so rewarding to be using it in this way. And I said, wow. do you want to tell me about your husband? And she said, yeah, I think I'm ready to now. And that moment, six days into the trip, she was the quietest woman the entire time. And it was in that moment that she opened up and it was like, this is the kind of magic that, that happens on things like this. Like you can put them in a, an office, in a clinical office for uh, an hour a week for years and years and years. And you, you sometimes will never get there, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I'm sure you have a lot of similar things like that that are happening while uh, you're doing a fun thing like hunting too. Oh, it's unbelievable. And we don't have, we don't have some secret formula or bring in like the world's foremost expert on PTSD or, you know, anything the soldiers are going through. It's, it's amazing that just by giving them an environment to be back around each other. And so back kind of in that team room environment, which really for athletes, for, for baseball players, when you get out, that's what, that's what guys miss the most is man, the, the time in the clubhouse or the locker room or the team room for the soldiers um, that when they get out, you know, a lot of them, they just don't get anymore. Uh, So to, so to put them back in that environment 
and really just kind of step back and say, just let us, let us know how we can serve you. You know, whatever our place is your place. Um, amazing what, what good can come out of that. I've, I've actually read um, studies about professional athletes and transitioning veterans and the um, parallels that they actually both face uh, as, mm-hmm. you know, as they're leaving, prof- as athletes are leaving professional sports and, you know, veterans are transitioning out of active duty. Um, again, you get back to that camaraderie, uh, not to bring up my Phillies again, but that was the one thing I loved about this team this year was you just felt the love that they all had for each other. Yeah. It was it was the coolest thing to experience. And I think as they walk out of this, you know, postseason, that's that's the thing they're going to miss the most, you know, was that connectiveness yeah. that they had as that team and and veterans, uh, you know, they're they're different, but like you're on this grand stage, you're playing in the World Series, and you know, there's so much pressure. And then you take mm-hmm. veterans that are in these hot box situations, of course, a little bit more life and death but these high stress situations, right? So like the bond that's there is forever. And you take them away from that and you don't ever give them a piece of that again. Um, It's, it's tough to overcome. Rushing. Yeah. Yeah. Rushing. It's, it's like when you lose that Jersey or that uniform, you know, and you become a a former guy instead of a current guy, it just, uh, it just does something. Um, that, that makes it really tough. So, yeah, I, there is a lot of similarities there. I, I think, I think with the military guys, it's, it's magnified by 10 or a hundred or whatever it is. Um, I think much more severe, but yeah, still with both of them, when you, when you become a, a, a former guy, if you don't continue to, to create that environment for them and, and it's neat, a lot of the similarities because baseball and maybe pro sports in general, is one of the few professions that you really don't have to grow up, right? Like in a clubhouse, if, if the business world could see what goes on in a clubhouse <laughs> and how immature, I promise you how immature your fillies are <laughs> off camera of the stuff that goes on, you know, is really similar to what goes on in a team room yeah. in training or overseas or right before or after a mission or so. So I think that also, you know, we have, we have a lot in common there that, that's pretty easy to tear down any barriers or walls when they first come in to kind of be able to enter into their space and, you know, be a part of some of those conversations. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I can think back to my brother, um, some of the things that he would ask for us to send to him for his guys. Oh and I yeah. would be like, really? <laughs> and my husband would be like, just get it. Just get the boxes, ship them up. You know, it wasn't, it questions. wasn't the care packages that you see happening at the <laughs> fun little care package drives with all the kids. So, uh, but yeah. I'm, I mean, sure, I'm sure he was asking you to send different items than he would ask his mom. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Over there. Oh yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. I understand. She said the beef jerkies and the socks, you know, we took mm-hmm. care of them and- the other stuff. That's right. So you guys, and you also have a lot of um, uh, MLB players that come out to the ranch too, to participate in this stuff, right? We do. Yeah. 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 We have, we have the most random guys that will show up and stick their head in for a couple of days and just, just to come support, you know, they, they love what goes on out here and, and selfishly it's a blast. Yeah. So 
we love doing it. We love hosting. Um, and yeah, we serve them, but I, I, I think all of us here would argue that we might get as much or more out of it, you know, than they do, which I'm, I'm sure you can relate. Absolutely. So tell me how you get into the, the, you know, I totally understand and get the work you're doing with veterans. It makes sense. Um, it, it, it aligns with the work that we do at the Travis Manning foundation, but then you take the dive into human trafficking. So what exactly does the E3 foundation support, um, in that realm? Yeah. And, and that's been one of those that we've had a really hard time on. How do we tell this story? Um, how do we put it on a website? How do we use it? How do we fundraise around the counter human trafficking? It's just, it's difficult because, and I told you a little bit, I got into it when I first went over to Thailand and I came back here and at that time thought, okay, this is a major problem, but it's a third world problem. Right. So I flew around that off season before I went back to spring training, I flew around and met with as many people that would let me in their office, whether it was government or non-government nonprofits, just to learn about this problem. And, and that's when I learned that it's a huge problem in the U S and, and happening in every County. And this was seven years, six or seven years ago, like happening all over the U S. So I started working with a few organizations um, that have been around for a while and do excellent work and really just supporting them. And when I could go out and travel with them and, and kind of learn how they combat it and, and, and how they go about it. Um, I'm trying to think where to go next without making it too confusing. Uh, of, of how it got rolled in under the foundation, because that's a tough one. Even now, when we talk about the E3 Ranch Foundation, the vets, like you said, but they're so different. The missions are so different with the counter human trafficking work and all the work we do with law enforcement um, that it, it just makes it hard to explain. Like, wh wh why would you be involved in those two things that are, you know, so, so drastically different? But long story short, I, I realized that we have a huge problem in the US and it's gonna be very hard to combat without becoming law enforcement, without, without being commissioned as a law enforcement agent. So when I retired from baseball in 16, I went to police academy in Kansas to be deputized um, under our local county here, under our sheriff here in Bourbon County. Um, so that then when I traveled around the country fighting human trafficking, I could, I could one attach with other agencies as a commissioned officer. Um, and two, I kind of became like a liaison between the nonprofit world and organizations that we work with that are doing great work and the law enforcement side. Um, so did that for a few years and then was able to go through a course with Homeland security to get attached with our HSI human trafficking task force out of Kansas city and become federally commissioned through Homeland security. So yeah, that's all kind of developed since my retirement from baseball, but it's been incredibly rewarding. So really in between when we host soldiers and veterans out here, um, that's kind of what we're diving into, you know, and, and eats up most of our time. Well, I think, you know, you say, how do you make the tie in, um, you know, I think for you, this is your foundation and the tie-in is the things that you're passionate about. You know, that's the story I would tell like, well, why yeah. trafficking because it's a problem and I'm passionate about it. Why veterans? 
because I care about our veteran community, you know? So I like your style because I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how I would tell that story. And I'm going to steal that. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so, so you're doing that. You're obviously doing the work with veterans and then, you know, we have two big things arise and, and that's kind of how we came to be connected again with our mm-hmm. mutual friend, Brian, who works with you. Um, you know, you guys started doing stuff uh, with the Afghan, um, co- the collapse of Afghanistan, and then with with Ukraine as well. So again, another mm-hmm. from from what Brian explained, another place where you felt super passionate about, and because you can, you dove into that work as well. Yeah, yeah, and we fortunately a long time ago when the foundation started. We, I, I know how ADD I am and how I can jump from one thing to the next. And like, if I feel there's a need somewhere, like God's moving me to go do something somewhere, it's going to be hard to say no. So we kept the mission statement, helping those in need, you know, just as broad and vague as we could um, to allow for situations like this. And so we did. And, and due to a lot of the soldiers we've had out here at the ranch, we started getting phone calls of these guys that had their, you know, second families and 10 year interpreters, 10 year guys that ran safe houses, you know, all the allies in Afghanistan that were working for them. So we had guys reaching out to us asking if there's anything we could do about it. Um, and so we, we, we thought we were, we would like, uh, dip one finger in and kind of help out and, I should have known better. You know, two months later, we're all in. We got guys that are deployed, headed over that direct, like just we're die, we're all in, and and still working on it now. So I don't know if Brian told you, but yep. and he's been working day in day out on um, a lot of the Afghans that we were able to get out into a neighboring country and you know move them on from there, and it it continues. But yeah, fortunately, we had. Um, uh, an awesome board with the foundation and a mission statement that uh, allowed for it, that we could, we could dive into that. And then because of some of the groups we got to work with, with the Afghanistan, Afghanistan disaster, um, we got asked to help out in Ukraine. Same thing. It was supposed to be like a week or 10 day in and out. And here we are months later, you know, fully immersed in it. So yeah, we're going to just keep pushing. I think you go where the need exists. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that's the beauty of what you're doing. And, you know, there's, there's, there's not one thing that you're doing that's not tied back to our military community. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, for sure. you look at human trafficking and, and just, I mean, the number of friends that I have that are veterans that are somehow tied or connected to helping this fight against yeah. human trafficking is mm-hmm. astronomical. Obviously, you know, I kind of did the same thing with Afghanistan. It started off with actually one of my friends being over in Afghanistan who was a translator and it turned into me helping him. And next thing you know, um, you know, you were getting calls from my, everybody. My board was like, we are not an Afghan evacuation foundation. And I'm like, so, you know, we did a lot of that and we ended up starting um, our own program specifically for helping resettled Afghans. Um, and it's still continuing oh, today. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. and then again with Ukraine, you know, people felt this calling to just want to be there to help these people that are so displaced. So I, I give you credit for kind of jumping in. And, and I think honestly, there's the, 
what I love about the E3 Ranch and Foundation is there are a lot of organizations that are very mission specific and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's not a lot that can kind of go where the need is. And you have a really kind of unique opportunity that you can go where the need is at any point you can pivot and, um, you know, and, and yeah. And, and we've wrestled with that too, because I've, I've been a part of and worked with organizations that are like very specific and have their niche thing and do not lose folk. And I totally respect that. Sure. I just don't know that that jives with, well, I don't know. I think it would just be really hard for all of us here to say no to something that we know we could impact yeah. and, and, and move on. So no, I, I love it being vague the way it is. It just makes it, uh, it's just a weird explanation when somebody's like, well, so what do you do? What's the foundation do? You know, you need two hours to sit down and really explain. I mean, you do all good, the things right? it is, but good. we, we just try to go wherever we're called. Yeah, yeah that's it. And, and, you know, and there is a tie, there is a tie with the veterans too. And I'm glad you brought that up because we have had guys come through here that also know about the counter trafficking work and have this unbelievable skill set and capability. And we're able to plug them in. Yeah. Um, you know, to help in that fight. Yeah. I, I think it's actually, it's quite interesting when you look at the intersect of like, um, you know, you being diagnosed with ADHD as a child and, and that's kind of, you know, widely known as something that, and you said, like you can kind of go in one place or the next and you, you, you can't always keep focus on, but in this case, it actually benefits you because sometimes it's hard for people to pivot like that. I mean, you know, yeah. to get, and, and I saw that, I saw people that so badly wanted to help with Afghanistan, but they were like, well, how do you get started? I don't know. You know, and, and it was like, <laughs> we need to put together a strategic plan. And I'm like, that's not how this works. You just have that's to right. go. Right. So, yeah. you know, to have your mind um, operate in that way where you can like pivot really quick, it, it probably works out as a benefit to you in situations like this. It does, but I don't know that some of the people that work with me would say that it's a benefit to them because they're the ones in the wake of all of that, like helping keep things in order and clean up the pieces. Uh, Brian being one of them. Uh, well, he's a good guy and, uh, you know, definitely is. somebody that can handle it for sure. He's um, been there. Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, we talk again, this, this podcast is called the resilience life. And we talk a lot about, you know, resilience and what it means to overcome adversity. Um, certainly the work that you're doing right now. And and I just, I love this story so much, Adam, that like, I mean, honestly, you could be sitting back on that ranch right now and you could be inviting your other retired baseball players over to, like you said, drink beer and, you know, shoot at animals all day and just have a great time and, and and live a, a a fun life, but maybe not a fulfilled life. Right. And That's not right. many That's people it. take that uniform off and decide I'm going to dedicate my life to service. So I think that just speaks so much about your resiliency. Um, did- well, thank you. And, I, and I've, but I've seen both sides of it. Yeah. So I, I've been there years ago where it was, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to act like I was crazy selfish or into myself or like all this is mine, but my mind was definitely not on who can I serve today? Like what impact can we really have? So I've been on both sides of it. And I mean, hands down, this is the most rewarding, fulfilling, 
you know, joyful thing that I could ever be doing. So no, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Do you see any um, similarities in being an athlete and building resilience? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know a guy that made it to the top of his sport or got to do it for a, a long time that didn't go through a lot of times where they thought about hanging up the cleats, like hanging up the uniform. And especially like we talked about the minor leagues where it's like, man, I'm making seven or 800 bucks a month. I've got kids. I've got, you know, my wife's probably wondering, am I any good? Am I going to make it? You know, all the things that go through your head um, that you've got to just keep pushing through. Um, So many guys that battle injuries or, make it for a minute and get sent back down to the minor leagues and feel like they got to do it all over again. So I think all of that um, builds has built some of that resilience that, that now comes in, comes in handy um, with some of the work we do. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last question. What does it mean to you to live a resilient life? Hmm. You should have prepped me with this for this one. So I could have come up with an intelligent answer. No, that's the point. We don't prep. No, I like it. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. Um, For me, a lot of it comes down to your perspective on one on life. Like, I think there's a couple kinds types of people. You've got glass half full, glass half empty. Like I've been in some situations that aren't real fun shouldn't be real fun, but we make them fun. You just met, you just, you know, I think you get out of a lot of things of, of how you view it, what your perspective is on the other side. And I can't help, but, but speak on it a little bit is as a believer, I know a couple things to dumb down the Bible. It's we're, we're supposed to love God and love each other. Like, I think if you just simplify the Bible, and, and part of that is serving other people. So <clears throat> if I look at it from an eternal perspective, you know, and realize that all this is his anyways, none of this belongs to me. It, it, and know that our little speck of time here on earth is nothing compared to eternity. It just makes it easier to wake up and want to do that every day and, and know that we're being obedient by doing it, but also selfishly, like I said, it's a blast doing it. I get to be around some of the best dudes on the planet that we get to host out here. I get to work with them on the counter trafficking side and on the law enforcement side and any of the work we've been able to do, you know, in Afghanistan and Ukraine. <clears throat> so I, I say that because that is part of what probably a huge part of what I view as as not only being resilient, um, but but be able to be impactful and positive in situations that may not be real fun or may be difficult to be able to push through those. Um, I, I like to think of the eternal side and not just the worldly side. So I don't know if that answers it or if I'm skipping around your answer. No, that would but, that was great. And honestly, for someone that didn't have this question beforehand, you answered that beautifully. And I think you brought up two things that I ask everybody this question, okay? And um, uh, 
But the first is I've never heard anybody talk about that perspective of like, you know, doing hard things, but like enjoying it or like coming to it with a positive attitude. Like that's so important. And it's something that you don't always think about all the time. So I love that. And I love that you brought up faith and, you know, the internal aspect of, uh, eternal aspect of being resilient. And, you know, I think if you look at it from that grand scope for those that, that do believe, um, gosh, it, it puts a lot of things. You, you've said it a lot in this episode, but you know, perspective, right? Perspective is everything. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. Adam, thank you so much. This was awesome conversation. Loved hearing about your, uh, your travels to from MLB to the incredible work that you're doing now. Um, we're going to throw links up to the E3 ranch um, and your E3 store where you are selling all of the, the meat that you're hunting and, it looks again. <laughs> you can buy like you can stockpile for the entire winter. My husband already has some stuff in the cart when he was checking it out it. the other day. But um, thanks so yeah. much for joining us. Um, I look forward to hopefully we can do more with with our organization and we can partner a little bit more on the work that you guys are doing. I'd love to be able to do that in the future. I'd love for everybody to make sure they check out uh, E3 Ranch and Foundation. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. This was awesome. Let's, uh, yeah, let's do it again. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to, to meeting in person, getting out working somewhere. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Please make sure to like, subscribe and share with your friends.